Spinner is a German CNC machine tool brand that's been around for 73 years. The company sold 1,200 CNC mills, turning centers, and automation systems in Europe last year. Yet in the United States, a large amount of people in the machining industry have never even heard of them. At the 2023 Precision Machining Technology Show, I met Salim Awad, President and CEO of Spinner North America. Salim has a fascinating personal story. He's from Colombia, he was an army diver in Iraq, and he founded his own law firm. And since 2022, he's been entrusted with bringing a German machine tool brand to the United States. From my experience as a machine tool dealer, it often seems as though machine tool brands are like religions for machining companies. Once a company has experience and success with one, it's hard to convert them to something different, let alone to one they've never even heard of. On today's show, we're going to talk about how you penetrate a crowded B2B market. How do you get customers to pay a half a million dollars to try a new machine? How do you market yourself? How do you earn people's trust? This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graff. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am very honored to be with Salim Awad, President and CEO of Spinner North America. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I had heard of the company Spinner, but it seems like most people around here haven't, or many people haven't. Um, I knew that it was a precision machining company from Germany and, uh, machines were somewhat expensive and I thought that they were highly thought of, but I didn't know that much. And first I really want to learn a little bit about the machines and I'm going to get your story cause it sounds interesting. And then I want to talk a lot about what it's like to penetrate the U.S. market with a machine tool that's, you know, got a lot of quality and history, but people don't seem to know it. At least the people I know don't know it. Right. So first of all, just give me, you know, the two-minute overview of Spinner, the company, what you guys make, um, the history, and then, then I want to learn about you, and then we're going to dig deep into what you guys are doing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Noah. Uh, yeah, of course, uh, you said it, Spinner is uh, 
German company, uh, still family-owned, been around since 1949, and like a lot of the great companies, started in a garage. Uh, The father of uh, the current uh, Spinner brothers uh, still run the company to this day. Uh, Started this company, of course, with uh, uh, the aim of uh, filling a gap in the requirements for precision machining in Germany and in Europe overall. Uh, Being a family company, of course, they've had very good uh, penetration in Germany, very good growth throughout Europe with approximately 1,200 machines per year sold in Europe, uh, with now plants in Bulgaria and Turkey as well. Bulgaria. 1,200 machines a year. So can you give me any comparisons of that to some of the other builders? Well, um, to be frank, I'm not sure what uh, our... Uh, other builders uh. sounds like quite a lot because so give me give me a few examples of the types of machines and what each one uh, costs right uh, CNC machine tools from lathes to mills we got some very special machines like a mill turn for example a mill turn with capabilities for grinding and some uh, hard turning machines that are able to hold sub micron precision so in terms of price I got to tell you that we're very competitive. Uh, when a lot of people think about German machines, they think, oh, yeah, they look great. They probably do a great job. But my God, I don't want to pay that that much. Sure. But the reality is that, uh, and I found this, and you were asking about you know, the penetration of the market. We found that we are able to provide a very high-quality product at a price that shops, uh, regular, normal shops, not only the huge companies, are able to afford. So okay. we're glad to provide that 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 value without having to, you know, break the bank for it. I'm assuming most of the machines are sold in Germany, though, at the moment? It, they really are sold throughout the whole Europe, right? Uh, but yeah, of course, Germany is the home uh, turf and the home market. Uh, and of course, it's, it's a place where our machines are very well received. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if possible, say, okay, so you have a triple turret machine. Um, you might compare that to what, like a Nakamura... NCY3 or uh, Index C200? Perhaps maybe more uh, your Index, uh, the design of uh, our lathe, the triple turret, to to give an, an example like you were giving, uh, also has, our lathe has a 90-degree bed that allows for extremely good uh, flow of chips and management of the of the work in the, in the machine. So, you know, give me some idea of how much one would cost, say, a, a triple turret. I, let, me, let me make a guess. Maybe like a triple turret, 65 millimeter. I'm just guessing based on other German machines, I'd say seven, 800,000, untooled. Untooled. Well, I, I got to say, and happy to, knowing that you saw the machine today, we're probably around 550. 550. Yeah. Okay. Because I'd say a C200, because I've been pricing them, you know, so the index competitor, sort of, yeah, that'd be about seven, 800 plus, you know, plus more. So it's a little bit less. So it's more like a Nakamura kind of. I know it, it's slightly different capability, but right. if you were comparing it. Overall, really good value. So it's like 550, is that tooled up or is that, is that with the bar loader? Is basic, that Some basic tools. And what we're finding, of course, this is a budgetary number, right? What I'm giving you. Uh, is, is that it, with the bar loader? No, without the bar loader. Oh, but okay. uh, a bar loader can be probably added and altogether you could probably be around 600. Okay. 
Well, good. I just wanted people to have like a context of it. Um, and then you have some milling machines and yeah, some very interesting machines. Okay. You are the president and CEO of this German machine tool company. And I know you've had quite a journey to get to this point. So I, I want to learn the different stages. You, you started, you're, you're from Colombia, yes? Colombia, South America. Yeah. Where in Colombia? I've so wanted to go to Colombia. I've, I've heard it's awesome. It's a mouthful. Bucaramanga is the name of the town. Yeah, okay. in, the, in the central uh, mountains of the country. Uh, but a lot of my family is in uh, Cartagena. Cartagena. North, maybe a little more popular amount uh, people around the world. Interesting. Do you salsa dance? I'm really into salsa dancing. Okay, so you're from Colombia. When did you come to the United States? 1997. Not, not with any plans to stay uh, in the country. Came to uh, study, uh, stay here for a couple of years, uh, learn the language. And unfortunately, 1999, my mother was uh, murdered in Colombia. She was um, shot 17 times uh, in you know, very unfortunate circumstances at our farm. At your farm? Yeah. So were you from a somewhat well-off family in Colombia or? Relatively speaking. Yes. Uh, you know, the 80s and 90s were uh, very violent in, in Colombia. You know, and to an extent, there's a little bit of that now in other countries like Mexico. Uh, but our families and many families suffered a lot uh, in that period. Yeah, kidnapping too, probably. And a lot of kidnapping. I uh, had uh, relatives that were kidnapped. And, of course, uh, a system where, you know, force controls everything. Yeah. But now it's a lot better than that, right? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I still got a lot of family there. So they, they tell me it's a, it's a much better place to be. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, you were studying in the United States when that happened? Yeah, I was. I, of course, I went back to Colombia and didn't think I was going to come back. But while I was there, the decision was made that I needed to request to come back to the United States. A family decision. Uh, and where were you studying in the U.S.? San Diego, California. Very nice. Very nice. What, what, like UCSD or? Uh, San Diego State and Community College combination of both. Okay. And then what? You joined the military? I joined. When I went back to Colombia, came back uh, in 1999. And uh, in 2000, I joined the Army as an Army diver. How does that work? I mean, you weren't a citizen of the U.S., were you? I was not. I was a resident. And uh, I was fortunate because, in fact, I wanted to, living in San Diego, I wanted to become a Navy SEAL right away. Uh, but not being a citizen, it was not possible. But the Army, fortunately, uh, had uh, deep-sea divers. And it's the kind of work that I wanted to be involved so with. So if you're a resident of the United States, they allow you to join the armed forces? At least at the time, yes. Very interesting. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm sure they do like a big background check and all that. But that I is so. <laughs> that's fascinating. So, okay, so you became an Army diver. Yes. And you wanted to be in the Navy SEALs, but they wouldn't let you because you weren't an American citizen? Exactly. Okay. So tell me a little about that. Army diving. Army divers. Well, not too many in the Army. Uh, in fact, I was in the Army for about over seven years, uh, deployed to many areas of the world, including Iraq. But even people in the Army don't know that there are Army divers and are surprised to, to learn that okay. the Army has divers. So you joined at just, just the right time, huh? like right before September 11th. Every, everything was uh, very strategically done, I guess. <laughs> Wow. So you went to Iraq? I did. And you mainly did diving near diving. Iraq? I was a salvage diver, uh, reconnaissance, 
Salvation Rescue was one of the, the biggest port reconnaissance, the biggest missions that we did. Wow. Very interesting. Okay, so how long did you do that? Seven years. A little over seven years. And then, then, then what happened after that? You just did, it was like your, your tour was over and then you said, all right, I'm ready for the next stage? No, actually, getting out of the military was not part of the plan. I, uh, I was uh, on a military trip, what they call a TDY trip, and I uh, had to stop traveling from Virginia to Florida in Savannah, Georgia, and met this uh, young lady that is now my wife that was not looking to get married, neither was I. We just happened to like each other and uh, developed into a serious relationship. And when I asked her to marry me, she told me she was not going to be an army wife. <laughs> Got you. Otherwise, you liked the military life and the military path? I did. I did. My, my goal was to become a special operations uh, soldier, Green Beret in the army, and probably make that the, less, the rest of my career. Wow. That's fascinating. So you meet this woman. She's the woman of your dreams. Total serendipity. Yeah. And then she says, this is no bueno for me. What was it like after that? You were, were you at a total crossroads or did you kind of have a game plan or? No, no, no game plan whatsoever. I mean, uh, a decision had to be made. And, you know, of course, uh, it's a tough life. Had I, you already graduated from college? I had not. Okay. I was finishing up. And because I finished up during the army. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I actually was one of those guys carrying a laptop around uh, when I was in the service, even deployed to Iraq doing my uh, college courses. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so then how do you get out of the service? Had you just done enough time and you can say, all right, I'm good? Right, right. Now, my contract was up, so we were able to, to time it in a way that, of course, there is still a responsibility to, to fulfill the obligation that you have with the military. Again, not something I, I wanted to do for my career, but got out and uh, decided to go to law school. Law school? Yeah. Interesting. That's like my dad, uh, when Vietnam was going on, he was trying to dodge the draft, so he went to law school for a year. <laughs> he, I did it the, the other way around. He loathed it. He couldn't, he couldn't stand it. Yeah. Um, so where did you go to law school? St. Louis University. Oh, SLU? Yeah. You uh, know it. You know it. Yeah, I knew somebody who went there. Okay, so you became a, a lawyer. You you got you did the whole thing there, and yeah, okay, yeah, yeah became a lawyer and was able to. Uh, of course, at the time, uh, competition for legal jobs was tough, but I was able to get a good legal job. What kind of lawyer did, did you want to be? Well, I wanted to be litigation, and that's what I did: litigation defense. So okay. product liability, medical malpractice, things of that nature. Okay, and then where did that take you? Well, that took me to a law firm for three years. Then I started my own law firm with another uh, attorney, and we did that for three years. Wow. I love, yeah, then yeah. I just, you know, started my own firm, and, you know, it's, wow. It seems like you just have a lot of chutzpah and just do it. That's incredible. Got to take action. Yes. And then what? And then what? Well, you started, I, you, first you worked for a law firm, then you started a law firm, and you were doing litigation, and, and then you decided, all right, it was time for a change. Time for a change. I realized that uh, discovered the beautiful world of uh, manufacturing and decided, well, uh, I think it's time for me to make the shovels and uh, sell the shovels and all the tools that are needed to, to make everything happen. And with the rise of automation, it was obvious to me the direction that, that we were going to be taking as a, as a country and in the whole world, the importance of 
advanced manufacturing and automation. Okay. So what did that entail? You were interested in manufacturing. So I, uh, I went to work for an Italian company called Bucci Industries. Bucci. Yeah. yeah. So here we are. You worked for Bucci. I'm very familiar with it. They, they make the bar loaders, Ayanka bar loaders. Yes, they got several brands, uh, Ayanka bar loaders, Giuliani transfer machines, Sinteco automation. Great, great family Italian company. Okay. So you, you decided, you know, you'd been doing your own thing. You had your own law firm and you said, you know, you saw manufacturing was an important thing. Mm -hmm. What do you just, you just applied for a job at Bucci and, you know, you showed them that you were brilliant and had a, an array of interesting experiences. And, and then what, how does that work? I, uh, I don't think I've ever applied for a job. I don't think I applied for the army. Don't think I applied to go into this law firm I work for. Clearly, I started my own firm, so I didn't have to apply to that. I don't remember applying to Bucci, and I didn't apply to Spinner. And you didn't apply with your wife. You just fell no, upon her. She, she was there for me. What an amazing, uh, um, amazing life. So, so you were at Bucci doing the business development, and then Spinner poached you from there? You know, the, the Spinner story was kind of interesting because it was an opportunity that they were looking for that they really were at a loss. They didn't know how this was going to happen. There was, there was, at some point, there was a meeting, right? And uh, there was a mutual discovery of opportunity. Uh, on my part, on the you know, high-level cap machines that they make in Germany, and the fact that although they've been around for so long in, in Europe, they had zero market here, basically. On their part, the opportunity to see what we had done at uh, Wibuchi, building the customer base and really a good infrastructure to support our customers in the United States. In some conversations we had, they found an opportunity to finally come and take part, a serious part of the American market. Mm -hmm. I've been around a little while and I see a lot of these machine tool companies and they go through a lot of presidents. It's, I think it's a lot of trial and error seeing who's going to be able to represent. Absolutely. You know, I've seen Index go through a whole bunch, I've seen ZPS go through some. I'm sure DMG and Tornos have gone through a bunch. Those are the, a lot of the ones we know of, you know. Right. Okay. So before this, you know, I knew of Spinner a little bit. I had a guy in Germany I work with offer, you know, he, he had one for sale or I know Eurotech here used to distribute it, but they called it a Eurotech, so they didn't really call it a Spinner. Mm. And now you are at PMTS getting the word out, showing the world what a spinner is. How long have you been distributing spinner in the U.S.? So I joined the company right before I empty as 2022. So August of last year. Okay. So yeah. before that, you guys hadn't been distributing in the U.S.? No, no, no. Spinner was uh, simply setting the foundations what, for what they wanted to do. And they, they decided to propose that I came in to, to lead the effort. Mm-hmm. Because it just they just said, oh, this is an untapped market. Let's right look for them. There was really no presence because, like you said, the, their brand wasn't known. Nobody knew what uh, type of machines they could offer, where they came from, or what capabilities they had. And it seems like you're somebody who likes a challenge. Yeah, and this seems seems like quite a challenge. You know, it's 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 a little bit of a calculated risk, right? When you see the the quality of these uh, machine tools. Uh, the history and the success that they have in Europe. So it's been around since 1949. Since 1949, yes. It's still a family company. Still a family company? Yeah. So uh, what's the first step? 
when you're bringing a machine tool or any really any B2B brand to a new country, particularly the United States, what was the first thing that came to mind? I'm sure you went to some consultants and said, what do people do? And yeah. so what do people do? No, actually, we didn't go to any consultants. Uh, the first step was to identify who we want to be and why and what resources we have to accomplish that. So, so we, we drew a, a mission objective that, of course, involved understanding the market. We didn't want to tell the market the, the business we were going to do. We, we wanted to listen for a little while and understand based upon our experiences and what we know works and doesn't work, how to move around bringing these machines here. Do you think they chose you partly because you've got an international background, but you've been in the United States doing machine tools a long time? I see, and you know, it's no offense to any of these other companies, but they often hire Europeans, many of whom have been living in the United States a long time, mm-hmm. to run the show, whereas, you know, you're a little different than that. Mm-hmm. You're not German. Um, right. I'm sure some people probably thought, I'll bring a German over or a German company. Right. You think that that was definitely something on their mind? I think, you know, every individual brings different elements to the table. And I think from me, uh, there are elements that come from the military, from how to, you know, move to a whole new country where I didn't know anyone or spoke the language and being able to adapt and overcome and kind of get that situational awareness to what's going on and decide on a course of action and commit to it. So, okay, so you came up with some strategies. What was the, the first thing you did was to find some people to sell it, to find some distributors? Or? Well, really the first step was to understand uh, what uh, type of customers were the right customers for us and get their feedback as to what they thought would be the best way to approach the market. Uh, yes, people have been the first thing that we brought on board. Look, we're in a market with labor. It's not too abundant uh, in, in, any, in any industry. But we have been fortunate enough and with my personal relationships to bring just a fantastic group of people. We're not to the level where we want to be as far as uh, uh, the team that we want to have. But I think we have a very strong foundation with the people that we brought already. Okay. So that's huge. Yeah. You brought people, a lot of people from Europe or um, just a total mix? Not at all. No, they're, they're all from the U.S. Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast. And I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media or a coworker told you about it. Or maybe you just got our weekly spam email blast teaser. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. And then, and then what? What's the next thing you do? The next step, continue to capitalize on the relationships that we already have. We call that the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and I was talking to a couple of friends from Italy here uh, in PMTS, and uh, we, we were sharing our stories of uh, when you start a sales business, uh, anything you're going to sell. 
you first make a list of your family members. And those are the first ones you call. Well, in this case, you call your friends. And, and the so, people, Bucci? Well, uh, in this case, you call the shops that we've already done business with, right? The people that have become your friends, that trust you, and that know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. You call them and you say, and, you know, these people have Nakamura's and Mayano's and Mazak's and, and Indexes, and you say... What do you say? We got this awesome machine. Come check it out. Are you happy? And uh, they tell you if they're happy. Uh, and many times you find a point of uh, unhappiness that can result in an opportunity for us. Actually, the, the question that might come to my mind, I'm very, you know, in the negotiation, I might, yeah. I might say, are you unhappy? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you also ask that? Because, I mean, often I feel like it's like asking how somebody is. Uh, right. How are you? I'm fine. Fine. Yeah. Because I bet that happens all the time. They yeah. say, I'm fine. And you're, you're just like, oh, okay, never mind. Yeah. What do you do when somebody tells you they're fine? Well, I think there's always a follow-up question, right? And, and we want to get to the core of the issue and fight the real pain. Almost like a doctor would, I guess, right? Start asking the real questions and find the core of the problem. And, and again, this goes back not only to a sales technique, but also techniques that are used in, in the legal profession. If you've ever been to a deposition, we all are all very familiar with the funnel uh, system of understanding the big picture and start narrowing uh, the areas that are critical or maybe are more interesting for the subject that we want to get at. Yeah. As you know, I, I sell used machinery. Right. And... I feel like selling new machinery, it's like on a whole nother level because I see machine tools, it's like a religion, right? It's really hard to convert people. <laughs> people are what they want. They go to yeah. the church, they go to the temple they like, that they know, that they're comfortable with. Right. And for you to go in like a missionary and say, check this religion out. Here's the new gospel. <laughs> Here's the new gospel. You know, the controls are similar. Right but it's going to change your life. Yeah. I guess you have to have people that really, the first thing you need probably is people that really know the equipment in order to go in and, and do that. Yeah, well, I think, I think the foundation really is trust. I mean, they got to know that you're going to follow through because I tell this to everybody in our team. Uh, we don't take for granted the investment that our customers make in the equipment. I mean, these this are, like we said, triple turn lathe can go for a little over half a million dollars. To me, that's a lot of money, and, and I hope I never become desensitized to the fact of this is, this is a huge investment. And they've already got one. Yeah. So yeah. somebody says, I have an index, and yeah. I, I happen to love it. Do you, do you kind of like, that's one that you just sort of go, all right, like, yeah. like let's go to some other low-hanging fruit? Or, I mean, how, uh, how much person. do you try to convert them? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't I, to be honest with you, I don't try to convert anybody. I think it's, we try to keep it solutions-based. So do you have a project? Do you have a par? And you have the, the feeling that you could do better. Oh, yeah, I do. All right, well, let me try it. Let me see if maybe we can do better for you. Maybe not. I don't know. I'll let the engineers figure that one out. Right. See, to me, when people ask us what machine they should buy, you know, I, I do know of various differences, but, you know, we, we specifically will do, like, Swiss or multi-spindles, right? Right. When it comes to, like, Swiss, you know, Tsugami, Star, Citizen, I do, after a while, I kind of know some of the differences between them. Mm -hmm. 
But in the end, it's really just personal preference. And when people don't have anything, mm-hmm. I just tell them, what do they have? What do most people have in your area? Who has the best support? Exactly. And I mean, yes, a lot. You, some are better than others. And some do have some feature that the other ones don't have. Mm-hmm. But if somebody's already comfortable with this distributor they have nearby, right. I could see it really having to be a leap of faith for them to say, try some unknown quantity. Right. Are you really trying to focus more on the people that don't have the machines already? No, no, not at all. I think, I'm, like I was saying, I try to focus on the elements that will make him feel comfortable. And one of them is a lot of these customers already know about, well, my personal reputation and what is becoming the reputation of the company of always following through and doing what we say we're going to do. What I've learned over years in manufacturing now is that it doesn't matter how good the machine is if it doesn't have the support. What I hear from true, customers, true. and I was telling you, you know, how do we build that strategy? Well, the strategy comes from what the customers tell me. And what the customer tells me is, I don't care how good your machine is. If you're not going to support it, it's, it's not good for me because I need the support. So that's where the focus comes. And what is support, right? You, you have to have the sense of urgency that they have. If the machine is oh, not yeah. running, uh, there's a great company called... Uh, 168, they make the high-pressure systems for, for the coolant and is... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. You're, you're familiar with them? Does the guy work with Gen Swiss? I'm not sure, but they make a high-pressure system okay. for the different fluids in the machine, coolant, okay. things like that. But anyway, the, the philosophy is that that machine has to run 168 hours. Uh, uh, yeah. Week, right? Because there's a value to every hour. And I always share with my team... What I feel is very important is that if a machine is down, we need to treat it as if a patient is in the ICU. This is an emergency. We need to run to, we need to fix it, and we need to make it right. Because, again, the investment is tremendous. And they're counting on us, uh, maybe this is the only machine that is going to make the part for them. So how do you do that? I mean, you, you were telling me before that you have some distributors. Yep. Are these distributors pretty good at working on these machines? The way I call it is the different rings of backup. And what I mean by that is uh, the dealers that we have are dealers that we're training in Germany. So they're sending their uh, service engineers, and we provide them with weeks of training in our equipment. Then we have our own engineers that come here to follow up on that training and making sure that these folks are doing the things the way they're supposed to be done for our machines, right? Then we also, Spinner, North America, we have our own service team. And we are supporting the dealers and supporting the customers directly. Uh, we don't have dealers everywhere in the country yet. So, yeah, so we're mean, supporting my... those customers directly. Okay. Right. Because, I mean, again, like, well, you see some companies and you hear about, like, Index. I don't know if the distributors really do that much support you feel like I feel like whenever I hear somebody with an index talking about support they're talking about getting it from Indianapolis or um, where are you guys headquartered in Minneapolis in Minneapolis so are most of your engineers your for instance your applications people your big-time service people are they all in Minneapolis? No, no. We have some people, well, of course, in Minneapolis, some people in Texas, some people in Michigan. Okay, uh, so you have yeah. some really good people in totally different places in the country. That's right. 
That's right. It's quite, uh, you know, that's quite something to be able to, you know, make that statement that you have people that are good all over the country. Yeah, we have to do it. We have to do it because otherwise we're unable to provide the support that's required. We talked a couple minutes before this interview and you said, I said, well, what's the secret? And you said, oh, we we provide support and service. And I like roll my eyes. And everybody says that. Yeah. Everybody says that. If you look on the internet, we've been around since 1949 and we give great service. So one of the big advantages you have is that you have a lot of really good people around the country in close proximity, sort of like some of the machine tool builders have that too. That's one of your main things that when you're pitching people is that? Well, the capability of the machine is number one, right? For us, because clearly we have tremendous technology. Uh, tremendously well built. Right. I suppose uh, that is the very first thing you have to. Right. And in, in, in the second thing I want to know is if we can provide a, a solution that adds uh, more value to this customer. Right. If we think this is something that they, they will benefit from, then we can talk about the support. You know, what will life with this machine tool doing this for you will look like? So do you, uh, do you have a lot of testimonials? Is that one of the things that you We do? got some really good testimonials, although you know, we haven't been in the market, in North American market that long. We already have people that are you know, very happy to share their good experience. Yeah. All right. Let's get a little bit technical. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not the most technical. I can sort of fake it a little bit, but it's hard to really get technical anyways on audio. Right. Let's just do the, the main nitty gritty is what's the control? Fanex, Siemens? Depends on the machine. For our lates, we have Fanuc or Siemens. For our mills, we have Siemens or Heidenhain. And for our mill turn, we use Siemens. Interesting. That's, that's an interesting uh, decision to do a whole bunch of different ones. Yeah. Well, you know, we try to accommodate the market. And to be honest with you, Fanuc is very popular in the United States. Uh, I think they provide great service and support to their customers. Uh, and for that reason, we've been trying to incorporate Fanuc more into the mix. As you might know, in Europe, in Germany particularly, Siemens and Heidenhain are very popular. Right. So Fanuc can provide service as well. They don't necessarily have to go to you. Right. So if there's certain things that go wrong, you just say go to Fanuc? Not necessarily. I think we take ownership for the machine, right? Okay. So it can go both ways. So maybe you're not available. They can go to Fanuc or... That hasn't happened yet. So I haven't been in that situation and we don't expect it to happen. Sure. It's it's not our intent to not be available. Okay. So if something goes wrong, first option is to go to you guys. Please. Please. We want to know right away. I was talking to somebody earlier today and they were saying, you know, everybody likes different things. Some yep. people swear by Siemens, some people swear right. by Fanuc. Right. And, you know, I keep bringing up Index just because those are some of the German machines I'm familiar with. And we were saying, oh, a C200 that has a Fanuc and one that has a, or it was like an ABC that had a Fanuc versus one that had a Siemens. And the Siemens, you can do things so many different more ways and it's, it's more flexible. Do you guys have recommendations on certain controls for the different machines? Uh, like, are the ones in Germany, are they all in Siemens? No, 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 no. There, there is Fanuc in some applications. Look, it's going to depend on you, right, as a shop. That's uh, nice. It's going to depend on, on, the, on the operators that you have. You know, you may have a key operator that says, absolutely not, I have to have this control. Well, that's might be what you have to do and have to do nothing with the capabilities of the control but with the capabilities of the operator and maybe you know how easy you wanted it to make uh the life for everybody in the shop okay 
Cool. I love the flexibility. Um, and it's not like, like a lot of machine tool builders, if you want Fanuc and the default is Siemens, they charge more, or is it very, are the price is the same? No, because we're solution oriented. We, you know, we're going we're gonna to give you the machine that is going to do the job, right? And the job is not done if you have a control that you don't want. Okay. Give me just a few key bells and whistles that some of the competitors don't have. If you're, if you're trying to brag, yeah. you know, I, and I, you know, look, you're realistic and it sounds like you have a really great understanding of the market and you'll be the first one to admit there's a bunch of good machine tools out there. So, so you are going into the shop and, you know, so the first thing you're saying is, all right, what, what do you like? Yeah. What do you not like? They tell you that then, and maybe they mention service or et cetera. Then you probably find out like what kind of job they're doing. Right. And then like, all right, when would you go and say, ha, you know, by the way, there's this one thing we do. I don't know if you need to do this, but you know, we, we really do this well. What would that pitch be? So I think the way we build the machines is unique, right? Uh, we, we have a lot of precision components in these machines that from glass scales to the spindles to the turrets. That's unique for us. We make our own turrets, our own spindles, our own castings. So in one factory in Germany, we're able to really? do that. Absolutely. So that is unique in that we, and we do it for a number of reasons, for quality control, for uh, well, this control of the supply chain. And if we want to make any engineering changes to the product, to a turret, for example, we have the flexibility to just do it. We don't have to go to a supplier to do it for us. That is very interesting. Yeah. Does that make the cost go up in certain respects? Or maybe in certain respects that's good for the cost if you're not? I think it's good for the cost because, uh, you know, with the volumes that we have in Europe, and I was saying, you know, over 1,200 machines a year, and the volumes that we're starting to see here, uh, overall, it, it results in a much, much higher quality. Yeah, control. more reliable if you, your people are watching over everything that's going on. Exactly, and we control the inventory. Interesting. You know, I mean, you think of a car and everything is made in a zillion different places. Right. But, I mean, obviously, you have people you're buying your screws from. And right, right, of course. Of course. Right, but the casting and all the like real all the precision components are made in house very interesting okay so they've got high accuracy they've you tailor the controls mm -hmm. to what people are interested in give me just a few things like the precision or the speed or, or something that sets it apart well, I think the precision. I mean, you, were, you, were, you were rolling off a few things when we were yeah. talking, when we were looking at the machine. So yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that the ability to multitask, uh, and that's what we're seeing. You know, significantly decrease cycle times in a lot of the processes that we're doing. Right, uh, the the tolerances that, that we're doing in some of the parts for customers, it's incredible. I mean, I have customers that were grinding these parts, polishing in many cases, and now they're in one up come out of our machine, they're ready to go. They just have to clean them, pack them, and send them to their customer. Really? Yeah. Now, the main way you're, you're penetrating it then is going door to door or is advertising a huge thing? I mean, just so people know, we're yeah. at PMTS and m most of the main builders aren't here. DMG is not here. Index is not here. 
Uh, is Nakamura here? I don't believe so. I don't think Nakamura is here. Mazak is here. But, I mean, you guys have probably the booth with maybe the most machines here, or yeah. at least competitive, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah. No, we. I, I'm very proud of the, the presence that we have at PMTS. Very proud of being part of the, the machining community. And I think that's, that's I mean, you why... you must have spent quite a bit of money to we bring did. all that stuff. It's, it's in, you know, we don't see it as an, as an expense. We see it as an investment. And also a show of commitment. A commitment to the machining community, to the precision machining community, and a response that we want to have customers think about we, you know, why we make this investment is because we care, because we want to be part of this group of people that are there every day figuring out how to do this machining better, more efficiently, more automated, competitive in the world. Well, I think it really says a lot that you're the one that came here. And I don't know. I mean, I think you really, it's cool if you're the only person here doing that because people are here at a show to go and touch things. Right. You know, push the buttons, watch it. And, you know, all these other guys are probably going to say, yeah, well, they can watch it on YouTube. Sure. Or they can come to our showroom. Or I was talking to somebody else today who was saying, you know, we can fly our best customers in from wherever and show them a good time for the millions of dollars it's going to cost. You could. But you're trying to get new customers, too. And so to get new customers, you, you guys definitely value it. Yeah, look, and we do all of the above. We, we do have an open house in our factory in Germany in about two weeks, right? And we're going to have customers from the United States going, customers from all over the world. But to me, to us, to the team, for us, is to show everybody that we're interested in you. We're interested yes. in being part of the team. And we're in it with you. We're not here just to sell you things. We're here to be a partner with you. I got to be honest, you know, I don't, I don't want to sell a shop one machine. I want to make him spinner shops. That is the goal. And the only way you become a spinner shop is by trusting in a spinner. And after you buy that first machine, you feel the love, if you would, right? Oh, wow, the machine, that's what it says it's going to do. They do actually support it. I wasn't so sure, but they do. And they're taking care of me. Wow, another need for another machine. Let's do another spinner. That only happens if you're part of the team, if you're playing together, sharing the, the, the ups and the downs right? So being in the show, making a big investment, showing the machines that people need to see, uh, it's not easy. It requires a lot of money, but also brings us a lot of return in the form of the relationships we're building with everybody here. Yeah, I get it. You're very good at making that argument to me. And just a few other things, like I was, I was going around asking people, what should I ask them? You know, <laughs> Somebody says, uh, what are you doing to try to get young people to want to do the machines? I, I definitely can feel the control, I'm trying to tailor the control maybe. Yeah. Is, did the, have, you, have you done a lot to, uh, you know, for the appearance? Have you, have you focused on that, like trying to give some, some bling to the look of the machine? Yeah. You know, when I, when I looked at the spinner machines, I always think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci saying that uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I see simplicity that works at a level of sophistication that I have not seen in any other machine. And that works. It gets it done. And it gets it done extremely well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the color is black and white. Right. It's, you know. 
it's 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 something look and you you were talking about how do you attract young people and well the the equipment has to challenge the status quo and that we we have to be able to do more but also i want you know young people to to feel and everybody should feel this this is a very honorable prestigious profession that, that what we're doing here yeah uh, the very fabric uh, and the we, equipment can really, it, it can make somebody want to do it. I, I think it does, you know, have that effect on me, right? And I think in a lot of our customers, I'm, I'm standing there at the booth at PMTS, uh, looking at people standing in front of the machine. Their faces are faces of, uh, it's refreshing to see some amazement, uh, some, a little bit of surprise, a little bit of uh uh, it's confusion. Like, who, How do I who, never heard of this? I, I swear, I went, <laughs> the several people I talked to, they either were like, I've sort of heard of them, or I've never heard of them. Right. This is, this is interesting. I have to go see them. Yeah, yeah. And these are people that are like very serious. And folk. they've been in machining for a long time, by extent. Decades. Yeah. It's exciting because you have so much upside. Do you have any specific expectations in the next year or two? Yeah, our expectation is, is a simple one. To do every installation the best we can. Make sure that every uh, machine that is installed at a shop does everything that it's supposed to do and that the process is painless for the customer and effective for the overall big picture of what they want to do. So one at a time, that's what I would say. It's a, a strategy that involves one at a time. Every one of them has to be right. And do you have any, any goals for how many you'd love to see in a shop in the next three years or something that well, would be successful? I, I, I figure these are pretty hard questions for you to give me an answer to. No, look, but ultimately, you know, I, I can give you, you the sell overall. 12, you sell 1,200 a year. Yeah. In Europe. In Europe. How many have you sold in the U.S. so far? Uh, about a tenth of that. You sold 120 in the U.S.? Well, uh, over the overall history of Spinner. Over the history of Spinner. Okay. Since this new push. Oh, well, I want to say we're approaching 1820. Okay. That's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. Over one year? Yeah, about, about a little more. Of, yeah. Uh, six months since IMTS. Just six months? Yeah. Hmm. Have you sold any at the show yet? I think so. I'm not sure yet. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's waiting some uh, final approvals. Do you have anything else that you want to say about the machine? Just reflections? Yeah. I want you to know that Spinner has been around in the world for a long time. We talked about the 1949 foundation of the company many years ago, but we're here to add value to the North American manufacturing ecosystem. We want to be part of the community. We, we want to do the right thing every time, uh, whatever it takes, right? And we want to grow with you. I think we can make you very successful. We have also a lot of automation capabilities. Hmm. That, yeah, that's another thing you guys do. Yeah, yeah. We got Spinner Automation out of Stuttgart. Our main plant in Germany for Spinner is in Munich, near Munich, a town called Sauerlock. Uh, but we also have an automation plant in uh, Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, so this is also our focus we understand that uh, the labor force is not present uh, and that we can you know, meet the challenges of the current global uh, situation, uh, whatever that might be, with more uh, technology, 
that, that works for us and we can get it from a country like Germany in, in Western Europe. Interesting. Just one other question. I always try to ask this question. Sure. What's something that uh, you learned last week or recently or something that you've been researching? Doesn't doesn't have to do with machining necessarily. Right. It could just be something you learned about a sports team or just that you know something philosophical. What what's something that struck you or or something you read recently? Right. I've been uh, researching and learning more about what it took for the United States and the Allies to build up manufacturing to meet the challenge of World War II. That's really interesting. And can you give me any tidbit that surprised you? Or uh, Yeah, that we were totally unprepared. Probably worse than we are now. Right. But you know the machine that won World War II is the Davenport. I didn't know that. Yeah. We... we uh, the Germans were making, they had like indexes with one spindle sure. and we had five. Yeah. And we just spit out those bullets like nobody's business. Yeah. But they, look, it just it's something we don't think about. But is, we were totally unprepared for World War II? How, I absolutely. Guess, yeah. Manufacturing wise? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's you know, really interesting. We realized that, that, that manufacturing plays an enormous, huge role. In, in defending our way of life and what we do here. And look, I got to tell you, uh, day one of our show here at PMTS, I gave the team a little talk. And the talk did involve uh, what it really means to be here. And we're not here just to sell machines. We're here to make sure that we can give our country, our way of life, democracy a chance going forward. And we, we really mean that. And so are you partly referring to reshoring? Every aspect of what makes us dependent and weak in any way. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. That's probably, that's a very interesting thing to to close on. And it's definitely an idea for a podcast about how prepared are we for if we ever actually do have to fight one of these big countries that doesn't seem to like us. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think that uh, we are where we need to be. That's for sure. And we got a lot of work to do. We need to be focused. We need to have the best tools that we can get our hands on. And we all together need to share the commitment. And we were sharing about community. And this is, you know, a relatively small precision machining community. But it really uh, educates, inform uh, our perspective and how we have to behave overall, right? Uh, be committed to a common goal that will benefit everybody. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Today's Machining World.